Welcome to Grace Claremont. My name is Caleb Brazier, the campus pastor here at Grace. Um, so we changed things up a little bit this Sunday. We're doing communion after uh, the service, and we'll get to the reason why uh, here in a moment. But so glad you guys are here worshiping with us. Um, Grace is one church that exists in many communities. So we have a number of campuses all around Central Florida. Uh, we're the newest here in Claremont. We started this past January, not this past, the January before, so a little over a year old. Um, and we've been here in the elementary school ever since. Um, and so we're so glad you guys are here. One of the things that marks us at Grace at each of our campuses, we are um, we have live teaching uh, at each of our campuses. So the campus pastor is the one preaching every week. And one thing about our preaching is we're expository preachers. What that means is we just, the majority of time, walk verse by verse, chapter by chapter through books of the Bible. Um, so we want to hold a microphone up to God, let him speak to us. And so since we started, we've actually been walking through the Gospel of John. Um, and we began in John 1, 1 over a year ago, and we are finishing up uh, his Gospels. We look at here the crucifixion and the death of Jesus. So we are in John 19 this morning. Now before we jump in, there's a couple things uh, to note. You may notice yet again that Garrett, our um, worship leader, isn't here. That's because his boy, baby boy was born this past week. Um, Elliot Wood was welcomed into the world 222 on Wednesday afternoon. So he's here, baby's healthy, mama's healthy, they're back home uh, recovering, getting back on their feet as their world is turned upside down uh, with their first child. One of the things that having a child does, it just reorients the center of of your universe. Like for your whole life, you were kind of the center and it all kind of rotated around you. And then you get married. Now, okay, there's someone else, but we're still kind of at the middle. And then a child comes and just everything else stops. You begin to worry about sleep and food and naps and uh, cries and toys and the wiggles um, and those things all of a sudden you care about and reorient. So anyway, we'll keep praying for them as they go through it, but Elliot is doing great. We're so excited. He'll be back here next Sunday, Lord willing for Easter, uh, but we're so excited for them. Also, a couple things on the announcements I just want to highlight before we jump in. We do, as Andrew mentioned, have our uh, study of hospitality tomorrow night, Loving Like Jesus. Uh, and you may go, well, who's that for? I don't really feel like I'm that hospitable. Well, then it's exactly for you. Uh, this is actually a night that uh, everyone in the church, uh, I would love for us to be able to be there. It'll be at Kelsey and Johnny's house. Uh, I'm just, I'm convinced that it's, I feel like God is calling us to be able to reach out and love our neighbors, the people around us. I think the tip kind of of that spear, I feel like I could use a different metaphor, but that was just the one that came to my head. The tip of that spear in loving our neighbors, I believe, is hospitality as we reach out. We see it's the way that God has loved us and dealt with us, and it's the way in which he's calling us to be as well. So tomorrow night, if you don't have anything, let me urge you and encourage you to be able to be there. Um, at 7 o'clock, we'll have child care. Uh, information about where that is is at the info table. There's an event on Facebook. Uh, you can check it out, but that's tomorrow night. And then also, Next Thursday, we're beginning fi uh, Financial Peace with Dave Ramsey. Um, so we'll be meeting on Thursday nights at South Lake Presbyterian Church, um, Thursdays in April and in May. And Dave Ramsey, there's just not anybody better out there when it comes to the logistics of how to deal with our money, how to interact with it, um, and how to be good stewards of what God has given us. Uh, and helping us give categories, to not be ruled by our money, but for us to be able to rule it and tell it where to go. Uh, and so if you've ever struggled with finances or feel like you can't quite get a grip on it, uh, this is going to be excellent. I'll be there. I'm so excited. Cindy Rivera is going to be leading it. She is a master trained instructor. Something really official sounding. Anyway, she's awesome. So she'll be leading it, um, but that's going to start next, the Thursday after Easter. Um, it's going to be wonderful. So she'll have a booth. Is You have table stuff out there? Not today. If you, you can go talk to her afterwards. Raise your hand. There's Cindy. If you've got any questions, you can go talk to her afterwards. But that's starting the Thursday after Easter. So 
With all that out of the way, jumping then into John 19 as we continue. If you grab one of the Bibles next to you, it's on page 774. If you don't have a Bible, take that with you. That's our gift to you. We're picking up in this story as John is telling now the middle of this passion narrative where Jesus has been betrayed, arrested, and tried in John 19, or in John 18. And then here in John 19, um, Jesus was delivered over to Pilate. The pronouncement was dropped on him to be crucified. And last week he was hung on the cross. And today we pick up with his death and his burial. So we'll be in verses 28 through 42 this morning. Now, After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. A jar full of sour wine stood there. So they put a sponge full of sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Since it was the day of preparation and so that the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for that Sabbath was a high day, the Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and of the other who had been crucified with him. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. But One of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear and at once there came out blood and water. He who saw it has borne witness. His testimony is true, and he knows that he is telling the truth, that you also may believe. For those things took place that the scripture might be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. And again, another scripture says that they will look on him whom they have pierced. After these things, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus, and Pilate gave him permission. So he came and took away his body, And Nicodemus also, who earlier had come to Jesus by night, came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds in weight. So they took the body of Jesus and bound it in linen cloths with the spices, as is the burial custom of the Jews. Now in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden, and in the garden a new tomb in which no one had yet been laid. So because of the Jewish day of preparation, since the tomb was close at hand, they laid Jesus there. So John here finishes out this story and rounds out the death, the crucifixion, and the burial of Jesus. Now, what I I want to do today is focus in on one thing that Jesus said. As we look in verse 30, after Jesus has received the sour wine, he said this phrase, it is finished. And I think that there's more weight to that phrase than we may often give credence As we read through it, it's actually just one word in the original, in the Greek, tetelestai. One word that's translated, it is finished. Jesus says, John is actually the only gospel writer who records this word that Jesus said. The other synoptic gospels don't mention it. But it rounds out and fulfills what is the entire mission of Jesus. But notice that as John says, writes here, that Jesus said it is finished, he doesn't give any other note on it. He doesn't go on to explain what it is, what was finished, how it was finished. He just says, it is finished and moved on, moves on. So I want to ask the question, as Jesus says this word in the Greek, tetelestai, it is finished, ask the question, what? What is finished? What did Jesus mean? And try to plumb into a little bit deeper what that word means and what it was that Jesus meant when he said it is finished. And listen, I think 
that no matter what we look at today and no matter how much you study this word, you will never understand and reach the bottom entirely of what Jesus accomplished. Which is why I want to dive into it because I think the deeper we go into it, the more amazement we have at what exactly Jesus did. And this word, I would even say, this is my opinion, it may or may not be right, but I feel like, um, I think that this word in this moment is the climax of the entire scripture. Everything up until this point had been building up to this word. And on the other end of it, everything is an explanation of what that word means. That everything was building up as Jesus was there on the cross and finally proclaims it is finished. The climax of the entire narrative of the gospel, the entire narrative of the Bible itself reaches here its peak. And so we have to step back and ask, what is finished? And I think to understand that, we have to go back to the beginning. And so today, what I want us to do is to take, get on the highway and take the road through the entire Bible and try to see kind of the overarching story that God has laid out. Beginning in Genesis 1, ending in Revelation 22. The longest sermon text possibly ever preached. Um, so... Buckle up. Today we'll be going, and briefly, um, we'll be going through um, first from the garden to Abraham, kind of stopping in Genesis 3. As we go along this highway, I want us to take a few exits along the way. As we look at the landmarks of this highway, there's four in particular I want us to look at. So we'll go from the garden to Abraham, then from Abraham to David, from David to the cross, and then from the cross to the garden. And the landmarks that we're going to stop at along the way, the exits that we'll take, will be Genesis 3, Genesis 12 and 15, uh, 2 Samuel 7, and then here in uh, John 19 uh, for the cross, and then Revelation 22. So those will be our stops kind of along the way as we jump on this highway. So beginning in Genesis 1, in the beginning, here in the story. And also, as we go along, there'll be a number of references. Feel free if you want to flip around and impress your friends to know where all of the Bible books are, but don't feel like you have to. We'll have all the references on uh, the screen, um, but you're free to if you would like to. So beginning in Genesis 1. In the beginning, God creates. There is nothing, and then there is something from a word. Now, that concept in of itself, we could spend the next 40 minutes on, but we'll move on. God speaks, and then things start being. He creates and fills this creation then with animals and plants, and then lastly, humans, as he places them there to rule over his creation. And there's this perfect relationship with God and creation, in particular, God with his people. Adam and Eve. There is no sin. There is no separation. He walks with them like friends in the cool of the day. There is perfect dwelling of God with his people. His dominion is perfect over all of creation. His dynasty will be continued through Adam and Eve as he tells them, be fruitful and multiply and fill this earth and continue to rule and keep this garden. And so there's this kingdom that's established as God kind of acts as the king and the, the people act almost as his vice regents to watch over and keep the creation. But very quickly, things get turned upside down. Right, Genesis 3 happens. It takes us two pages to mess everything up. We are really good at that. And in Genesis 3, these, cre these uh, pieces of dust that had life breathed into them rebel against their creator. They disobey. They, in essence, go, what you've told us can't be true. We want something greater. And they turn and they rebel, and they're driven out of this garden. They're driven out of this kingdom, this perfect kingdom where God dwells with them, his dominion reigns, and his dynasty will continue. And this curse is dropped on all of creation and on these people. 
and there's really not much hope. God is holy, and people have now rebelled, and there's a separation that can't be bridged. But in the midst of so much darkness, and in the midst of the curse of Genesis 3, God speaks this small promise of hope. And in Genesis 3, 15, as God is laying out the curse itself to the serpent, to the man, and to the woman, he gives this promise. He says, I will put enmity between you, talking to the serpent, between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall crush your head and you shall bruise his heel. So in the midst of a curse, God offers this bit of hope and says, yes, there is there is this curse that's now dropped. I've told you, the moment that you eat of this fruit of this tree, you will die. You will surely die. But there is going to come from this woman, this offspring, this son, who will crush your head and will defeat you once and for all. This is, as some theologians call, the proto-evangelion. It's the first gospel. It's the very first glimmer we have of this promise of the gospel. And the rest of the Bible unfolds in the shadow of this promise. Really, the rest of the Bible is a commentary on this verse. As God gives this very first promise, this very first hope of a son that will come from Eve and crush the serpent's head. Now, after Genesis 3 and Genesis 4 through 11 kind of are filled with the downward spiral of humanity. We see chaos, idolatry, murder, paganism, a worldwide flood, and kind of culminating in Genesis 11 whenever all of humanity gets together and says, you know, let's build our own kingdom. And they begin to build this tower up to the sky. And they look at God and they say, you know, we don't need you to get to heaven. We can do it on our own. We're talented enough to be able to reach it on our own. And they try to build their own kingdom. And guys, listen, we're no different today. This is the great struggle we have in our life. As we try to, there's this feeling in us, this twisted desire to build our own kingdom, our own life, our own power, our own dynasty and dominion from our little clan of people. And that desire to be a part of a kingdom is a God-given desire. It's a good thing. The problem, though, is that we weren't made to rule over our own. We were made to be a part of an eternal kingdom, ruling underneath God. And so we see kind of at this apex, then, of the downward spiral of humanity in Genesis 11. Humanity has rebelled now, but God breaks into the scene in Genesis 12 and kind of breaks the silence. And so from the garden, then we get to Abraham in Genesis 12. And now we'll work from Abraham through David. In Genesis 12, God breaks into the story here as he has pulled back his presence. And humanity has gone on this downward spiral. In Genesis 12, God now comes and finds a man named Abram that would later change his name to Abraham. And he calls Abram to something great. And he promises him something even greater. Listen to this promise from Genesis 12, verses 1 through 3. The Lord said to Abram, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. So to hear what God's saying, he's saying, leave your house, your land and go. But he's telling them, go to the land that I will show you. He doesn't give them a specific destination. God says, as you go, I will be with you and I will show you where you're supposed to go. So God, whose presence has pulled back since the Garden of Eden, now is interjecting himself back into the story of creation. He's in essence telling Abram, hey, I'm moving back into the neighborhood, and I will show you where you will go. And when you get there, I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great. Why? So that you then will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse 
And listen to this, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So God here is saying, I'm going to move back in. I'm going to lead you to a new land. And through you and your descendants, I will bless the entire world, all the families of the earth. And do you hear the language here as God is saying, there's going to be this building back up of a great nation, of a kingdom through you and your offspring. So how? How will God do it? How will God bless the world? Well, as Wayne read earlier in Genesis 15, God will do it through a son of Abraham. Well, what's the problem? The problem is Abraham is really old. He doesn't have any kids. Now, really old, I mean 100 years old, really old. Abraham is old. He doesn't have children. There's no hope for children. But God takes him outside, puts his arm around him, walks outside and says, Abram, lift up your eyes and look at the stars of the heaven. This is how your offspring will be. This is what your descendants will be like. And it will happen not through Eleazar of Damascus. It will happen through your son that I will give you. And verse 6 says that Abraham believed God and had faith, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Have you ever wondered what faith looks like? Or if you have that kind of faith and what that may look like practically, it looks like Abraham here. It looks like building a cradle whenever you're 100 years old and don't have a child because you believe that God can do it, because God can do what he has promised to do. So God then seals this promise of blessing all the families of the earth through the son of Abraham. He seals it with a covenant in Genesis 15. Now, a covenant is a promise in which God obligates himself to his people. A covenant is a promise in which God obligates himself to his people. So these are words that we typically don't use a lot, words like kingdom and covenant. But I'm convinced that even those two words give us categories for how to understand our entire Bible. As we'll see, God keeps coming back to this language throughout. Kingdom, covenant. God's promise to his people, God establishing his kingdom in the midst of them. So in Genesis 15, as we read through, look at down at verse 9. God then said, to Abraham. He said, bring me a heifer three years old, a female goat three years old, a ram three years old, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. And he brought him all these. He cut them in half and laid each half over against the other, but did not cut the birds in half. When the birds of prey came down on the carcasses, Abram drove them away. As the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram, and behold, a dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. So you hear the scene of what's happening here. God says, go get some animals, cut them in half, separate them, put it kind of on a hill. The blood then will pool in the middle, flow down, drench down at the bottom, pool at the very bottom, and set this scene for me. And whenever that scene is set, when animals are torn apart, when blood is flowing, then a deep sleep fell on Abram, and behold, a dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. Now this is weird, right? Unless you're from Groveland, then maybe this is just like a Saturday night for you. But this is weird, and we would read through this and go, what is happening here? What is going on? But this ceremony that happened wouldn't be strange for someone who lived in the Middle East thousands of years ago. If you were to pick up somebody from 6,000 years ago, 
pick them up from the Middle East, transport them to New York City, have them walk through an elevator, go up with these guys sitting around with coats and ties, walk then into a boardroom overlooking the skyline of New York, sit down at this huge table and this desk with things that roll. The wheel hadn't even been invented yet, probably. And they're sitting down at this table, and all of a sudden you have these people, lawyers, sitting around the table. It's like, what's a lawyer? You have to explain law school and law and the judicial system. And uh, in this uh, contract that's being signed, a business is buying out another business, and they are signing this contract, the business is bought out, and imagine someone from this time period transported, observing that. They wouldn't have a clue what's happening. They don't know what an elevator is. They don't know what paper is. Papyrus ain't even around yet. Egypt isn't around. They don't know what a lawyer is. They've never seen a tie before. They don't understand what's happening, but for us, it's just commonplace. For us, whenever we watch TV or watch movies and we see contracts be signed with lawyers, we go, oh yeah, that's typically how a contract is taking place. That's how deals are done. But you'd have to explain it to someone coming from different cultures and different time periods. And it's the same for us as we are then the opposite way, picked up and transported back thousands of years ago to a Middle East contract ceremony, a covenant ceremony. It doesn't make sense to us, but for Abram and for the people there, this was common practice. This was a contractual ceremony or more specifically a covenant ceremony in which two parties come together and they agree upon a covenant. This happened often with different nations as one would conquer the other. There was a greater nation over the lesser. Uh, so suzerain over vassal. So it was a suzerain vassal covenant is what it was known as. And as the greater would come, he then would promise as he overtook them, he would say, here are the blessings that we can provide to you, you smaller country, you smaller nation. We can offer you protection. We can offer you food. We can offer you all these things if you keep your end of the bargain, if you pay taxes, if you don't rebel, yada, 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 naming a number of things. There are these stipulations put in place. And once the covenant stipulations are agreed upon, both the blessings and the curses, then the two parties come together, the greater and the lesser. They would take animals, cut them in half, separate them, have the blood flow down the bottom, and they would both walk down the aisle together. And what that's signifying is from the lesser party saying, if I break my part of the covenant, let what happened to these animals happen to me. It's a serious covenant. One in which says, I will keep my end of the bargain as the lesser part of this covenant. So as this happens, the animals are separated. A deep sleep falls upon Abraham. And skip down to verse 17 and look what happens next. When the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking firepot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces of animals. And on that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, to your offspring, I will give this land. Now, this is shocking, but it's not shocking for the reason we may think, as we're initially caught off guard by the strangeness of the ceremony. What's shocking about this story is that there's only one person walking down the aisle. God here, in the form of a smoking fire pot, walks down between the aisle by himself. Abraham's over on the side asleep. And what God is saying here, what he is promising, is that he will bring the blessing to all the world through the son and the offspring of Abraham. That's the blessing that's promised. And when, not if, but when Abraham breaks his part of the covenant, 
when his descendants break their part of the covenant as the lesser part in this relationship, God will take on himself the curse of that covenant. He will suffer the consequences for Abraham and for Abraham's descendants. God in this scene is both the covenant maker and the covenant keeper. He's doing it all on his own. And he's saying, step to the side. I will bring the blessing and I will bear the curse of this covenant. And it's so important that we capture that. And as we move forward, then God delivers on his promise. And Abraham does have a son named Isaac, this promised son. Isaac has a son then named Jacob. And later in Genesis, we see God then appear to Jacob in Genesis 35. And we see that God appeared to Jacob again and blessed him and said to him, Your name is Jacob. No longer shall your name be called Jacob, but Israel shall be your name. So he called his name Israel. And God said to him, I am the God Almighty. Be fruitful and multiply. You hear similar language from the Garden of Eden. A nation and a company of nations shall come from you, and a king shall come from your own body. The land that I gave to Abraham and Isaac, I will give to you, and I will give the land to your offspring after you. So here, Abraham's grandson Jacob gets a new name, Israel. And God is re-upping on his promise, saying, it's coming. A nation is coming through you. Kings are coming through you. A kingdom will be established. I'm coming back. The descendants of Israel, of Jacob, or the children of Israel, or as God promises here, the nation of Israel. And this promise includes land, nation, kings, and a kingdom. And what was lost in Eden is beginning to be pieced back together. Through what? Through two things. Through the ratification of God's covenant and through the reestablishment of God's kingdom. And from Jacob, whose name was changed to Israel then, he had a few sons, 12 to be exact. The most famous was a boy named Joseph, who had a coat of many colors, and also starred in the 1970 Andrew Lord Webber Broadway smash hit, Joseph in the Amazing Technicolor Dreamcoat. <clears throat> from Joseph then, um, he was brought into the relationship with, um, he was sold into slavery, made his way over to Egypt, worked his way up the chain, where he became the second in command at Egypt underneath Pharaoh, had a great relationship with Egypt. And under rela Joseph's relationship with Egypt, Israel, the entire family, moved to Egypt, and all of a sudden the people and the children of Israel began to grow, and a nation began to form. They prospered. The, the family began to multiply. They did exactly as God had said. They were fruitful and they multiplied. And, <clears throat> and underneath Egypt, this nation began to grow. And that leads us to Exodus 1, chapters 8 through 10. As we read, Now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. And he said to his people, Behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply. And if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. So there's a new king who doesn't know Joseph that's now starting to worry, hey, this, this family is starting to grow into a nation and one that's pretty powerful. We need to deal shrewdly and put laws in place that will enslave them to make sure that they don't overthrow us. And so this leads to the enslavement of the entire nation of Israel, the people of God. So God then sends Moses to deliver his people. He sends uh, ten plagues to deliver his people, and the people of Israel let go. They cross the Red Sea. They begin wandering through the wilderness towards God's promised land. Now, why is it called the promised land? Because it was land that was promised to Jacob and to Abraham in Genesis 12 and in Genesis, 25, in Genesis 35, and now to Moses and an entire nation of freed slaves. 
They get to the promised land through a number of difficulties told in the books of Exodus and Numbers. And as God is now leading his people and beginning to establish his kingdom, he gives them laws to be able to live within this kingdom, this new kingdom. And that's where we get the books of Leviticus and Deuteronomy. So when they get to the promised land, eventually they begin to grow. And they look around and all of a sudden they notice, hey, all these other kingdoms, they have kings. And we don't. So we would like one too. Right? We, we all understand this. As we're children, or if you have young children, if they don't have a toy and every child around them has a toy, they go, I want a toy. And it was the same thing with the nation of Israel here. They were no different than we are. And through this process, we get the book of Judges. As the nation of Israel begins to break out into chaos, God was trying to explain to them that I am your king, but they kept falling into chaos. So God, acting as their king, would send a judge to kind of right the chaos. Things would get better, the judge would die, they would break back into chaos, rinse and repeat. This happened over and over again until we get to the end of Judges chapter 21, and we read, in those days there was no king in Israel, and everyone did what was right in their own eyes. So there's no king like God had promised Israel in Genesis. But the book of Ruth then comes next and shows this incredible story of redemption in the midst of brokenness and despair and um, being a widow and not having children. God steps in and does something remarkable. And at the end of Ruth, we get this strange genealogy that the book ends with. We read that Naomi then took the child of Ruth and laid this child on her lap and became his nurse. And the women of the neighborhood gave him a name saying, a son has been born to Naomi. And they named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, who was the father of David. And so as the book of Ruth ends, we see kind of this first glimpse of a king that's coming, of David, and the path is now set for this kingship to be established. So we've now gotten up to David, so now we move from David to the cross. As we now have this path of kingship that's here, we begin to have the dwelling dynasty and dominion of God beginning to be reestablished. God's dwelling is with his people in their midst as he dwelt there in the tabernacle amongst the people of God. God's dynasty is being established through his chosen king, David, and God's dominion is being spread through Israel's rule and reign as it expands. God's promise to Abraham feels like it's on the cusp of its fulfillment. It's almost as if the kingdom of God was there to taste. Israel was growing. David was great. And as this kingdom is being established, David wants to build a house that reflects the worthiness of his God, an ornate and beautiful temple that will last forever so that the people of God can enjoy the presence of God. Not in this little uh, shoddy tent over on the side, the tabernacle. David wants to build something remarkable that's worthy of God. In 2 Samuel 7 Verse 2, David says this to Nathan, the prophet. He says, See now, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells in a tent. David is feeling the sense that he dwells in this beautiful house, and God dwells in this tabernacle, this tent. And he begins to lay out this plan to build God this beautiful temple, a house that God could finally live in and be proud of. But God's response to David's request is shocking. Right down in verses 12 through 13, God responds to David in 2 Samuel and says, David, when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, or when you die, when you die, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. So to hear what God tells David, he said, no, no, you're not building me a house. 
your offspring will build me a house. And not only will he build me a house, I will build and establish your offspring's kingdom forever. And we hear, and now in this covenant that God makes with David, we hear this language once again of kingdom. God establishing his kingdom through David's son. Now it sounds a lot like what God promised Abraham, doesn't it? That through your son, I'm going to accomplish these things. Don't miss this. God is putting all of his eggs into the basket of one man, one descendant, one offspring. He's going all in on this one son, the promised son of Genesis 3 that will crush the serpent's head, the promised son of Genesis 12 and 15 that will bring blessing to all the families of the earth, and the promised son of 2 Samuel 7 that will establish the kingdom of God forever. Listen, we cannot fully understand the promises kept in the New Testament until we understand the promises made in the Old Testament. And at this point, things seem to be going swimmingly, right? Things are great. David's growing. Israel's on its way. This promise has now been given to David's offspring. The kingdom is being reestablished and is growing, but the story quickly falls apart. David's sons don't reflect the character of God, but instead rebel against God. The nation of Israel is divided by internal disputes into a northern and southern kingdom. It's like a civil war before there was even Captain America or Iron Man. And this is what we have here in Israel and Judah. And there's stories being told through a number of books. First and second Kings, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentations, Daniel, Ezekiel, and a lot of the minor prophets. And both of these kingdoms at different times drift away from worshiping God. They are then led eventually into exile and captivity under a strong and a ruthless nation called Babylon. And they're there for 70 years. But then after 70 years, they're freed from exile. They're freed from captivity, and they come back to the promised land. This is the story of Ezra and Nehemiah. And do you know what the very first thing they do is when they get back to the land? They rebuild the temple so that God might dwell once again in their midst. Because they knew the most important thing that they needed was God to dwell with them, to be in the presence of God, and to be in his presence. That's the most important thing that we need. But when they rebuild the temple, the most tragic thing happens. God doesn't come back. His presence doesn't return. And the nation of Israel endures 400 years of silence from God. Now think about how long that is, 400 years. Our nation has been around for 242 years. So we're just over halfway there. As Bon Jovi would say, we're just living on a prayer. There were entire generations of people in this nation that lived not in the midst of God's presence, but in the midst of God's silence. They never heard God. They had heard these stories of what God had done of old, delivering people from Israel, leading them through the Red Sea, taking them to the promised land. But they haven't seen anything like it. They haven't felt his presence. And you can imagine if you were placed right in the middle of that time, how we would think. How would you feel? What questions would you be asking? Are these promises true that he made to Abraham and to David? Will he keep that covenant that he made with both of them to establish his kingdom through their son, through the son of Abraham and the son of David? Or is he gone? And that brings us up to Matthew 1.1 and the start of the New Testament. And the silence is broken with these words words. The book 
of genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David and the son of Abraham. Imagine in the first century, if you lived in the nation of Israel and you'd lived your whole life not hearing from God, wondering, would this son come? And for the first time, you get this copy of this letter that was written by this guy named Matthew. Someone told you to read. And you stop and you look and you read the very first sentence that says, this is the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David and the son of Abraham. And at once, hope begins to rush through your body as you think, could this be the one? Is this the promised son from Eve and Abraham and David? Is this the one who will be the son of David, the kingdom establisher, the son of Abraham, the blessing giver, the son of Eve, the serpent crusher? And it's here at this moment that Jesus steps onto the scene and he arrives. So the Old Testament was God preparing his people and preparing for us the scene and the stage for Jesus to show up. Right? This is like any musical. If you've ever seen musicals or fan of musicals, I've become a huge fan of musicals. And my, my favorite one currently is a musical called Hamilton. It is a hip-hop musical based on the life of the founding father, Alexander Hamilton. Don't knock it till you've tried it. It is outstanding. The guy who did the music for Hamilton is the same one that did the music for Moana. So you know it's going to be good. And as Lin-Manuel Miranda, he wrote this, uh, this musical, he read the, this long biography of Alexander Hamilton, got done and said, you know what, this would make a great hip-hop musical, and began to work on it, and it has shattered expectations. It is unlike any other musical broken beyond Broadway and into culture and is wildly popular. But in it, every single night as these actors would walk onto the stage, there had to be the proper things put in place. The lights had to be just right. The sound had to be checked. Their costumes had to be right and designed. They would sit in hours of makeup so that at the very first song, there's this moment where all the, all the ensemble is out and ask, what's your name? And in a moment, Lin-Manuel Miranda walks forward, the spotlight shines on him, and he says, my name is Alexander Hamilton. And it's, oh, it's so good. <laughs> Every time. But that moment doesn't happen and land like it should if the stage isn't set, if everything's not right and all the proper pieces aren't in place. If Lin-Manuel just walks in with his fedora and scarf and says it, it's not quite the same. If you can't hear him because the microphone isn't on, it doesn't land. The stage has to be set just right. And the Old Testament is the process of God setting the stage. It's the process of him getting the lights just right, beginning to give us categories of things like kingdom and covenant and sacrifice to be able to show us glimpses of what Jesus' work will be like and what he will accomplish. Because you see, God never intended to bring about his kingdom through a political power or a strong army. It's not like that failed in the Old Testament. He never intended the sacrificial system to go on for eternity. He never intended his covenant to be kept by the obedience of his people. We have the entire Old Testament to give the people of God categories for what he was about to do through Jesus. It was all given to us to understand his work. They were never ends in and of themselves. They were all pointing to Christ. This is why Jesus in John 5, 39 can look at the Pharisees and tell them, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. Remember, at this point, as he's talking about the scriptures, he's just talking about the Old Testament. He says, you search the Old Testament because you think in them they have eternal life, but it is they that bear witness about me. 
When Jesus read the Old Testament, he read it as setting the stage and pointing forward to him. The Old Testament isn't a collection of uh, antiquated books that's hard to understand and has no real relevance in our lives. They are words that are developing these wonderful scenes and setting the stage for the Messiah to appear. They show us the promises that God has made. And now in Christ, we get to see the promises that God has kept. 1 Corinthians 1.20 says that all the promises of God find their yes in Christ. That Jesus is the divine promise keeper. But how would Jesus accomplish and fulfill these promises, these grand and divine promises of God? First century uh, Jewish people thought that it would be through the reestablishment of a political system to overthrow Rome and get them back on their feet again. Maybe some people thought to be able to bring this incredible spiritual kingdom that God was going to establish, not an earthly kingdom like like Jesus talked about in John 18. That In order to establish that spiritual kingdom, you need a great spiritual power like maybe on the Mount of Transfiguration, where the veil of Jesus' humanity is pulled back and the disciples get to see Jesus in all of his glory and light shines forth and they fall in fear. And we see the power of Jesus. Or in John 18, when Jesus speaks his name and the soldiers fall trembling on the ground, we see this spiritual power. Is that how Jesus will come and accomplish these promises? But it's not through power that God accomplishes his promises to his people. It's through weakness, it's through sacrifice, and it's through a cross. Because you see, we have to remember the story of Genesis 15 and that strange covenant ceremony that God made with Abraham. As God walked through those animal carcasses with their blood flowing down a hill and pulling up at the bottom, he made the promise that in order for his blessing and his life and his hope to come to his people, that his body would have to be torn apart and his blood would have to flow like these animals. In order for God to be both the covenant maker and the covenant keeper, he would have to be killed because his people broke the covenant. He would be the sacrifice. He would be the Passover lamb. He would die in their place. He would bear the curse. So you see, in Genesis 15, when God walked through those animals, he signed the death warrant of his son knowing that in that moment, his body would have to be ripped apart and his blood would have to be poured out. And it's through this upside-down, incongruent act of a crucifixion that we see the fulfillment of Genesis 15. And it's here on a bloody cross that the promised son of David, the king of the Jews, sits on his throne. It's here with the curse on his head, that the promised son of Abraham brings the blessings to all the families of the earth. And it's here with pierced feet that the promised son of Eve at last crushes the serpent's head. And as Jesus hung there on that cross in the midst of pain and terror, like you and I will never be able to comprehend as he absorbed the wrath of God for our sins and our transgressions, as he drank the cup of wrath that was meant for you and I down to the dregs, as he stood there in our our place. God kept his promises. And in a word at the end of this, Jesus lets us know that finally it is finished. To telestai in a word. And this word here in Greek indicates an action that's been totally completed. It's finished once and for all. It has now been 
finished. The mission of why Jesus came, the mission why he was sent to fulfill the promises of God, to keep his covenant, to establish his kingdom forever, it's been accomplished. And do you see where all of this took place in John 19? I love this. Look at verse 41, just two verses before the empty tomb and the resurrection. John puts this little detail in there. Now, in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden. And in the garden, a new tomb in which no one had yet been laid. John makes note here that the place where the crucifixion, the burial, and resurrection of Jesus happened was in a garden. He knew exactly what he was doing as he said that. He wanted the readers to know that what began in a garden was finished in a garden. That as sin and death entered in the world in Genesis 3 in the Garden of Eden, it's here in this garden that Jesus finished it once and for all. And he stood in its place. And now at last, the serpent has been crushed. The blessing is flowing and the king is enthroned. Tetelestai, it is finished. And now quickly from the cross to the garden then in Revelation 22, we, we get the rest of the New Testament and explaining the importance of this word, the importance of what happened here. And in Revelation 22, the very last chapter of the Bible, we get this image from John, the same person who wrote this gospel, of what that place will look like in heaven as we dwell with God for all of eternity. And listen to how he describes it in Revelation 22, here at the very end of the Bible. He says, Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. Also on either side of the river, the tree of life, with its twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. And the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. This is a city, but do you hear what the city sounds like? The city sounds a lot like a garden. As there's the tree of life, there's fruit, there's rivers, there's trees. And we see the whole arc of redemptive history, the entire story of the Bible, begins in a garden begins to devolve into this moment at the very bottom where sin and death are finished once and for all in a garden. And the kingdom of God is inaugurated then in that moment and begins to be reestablished. And then as we begin to go forward, we will end once again going back to that garden to dwell with God forever. So look at how God has dealt with what we've broken in his covenant, our sin. As we've sinned and stand under the consequences of that choice, God has taken our sin and he's dealt with it once and for all. Your sins have been dealt with entirely, past, present, and future. It is finished. And if you trust this king, if you follow him, if you believe in Jesus Christ, then your sin is placed on that man, on that cross, and he took that punishment in your place entirely. His eternal indefinite plan has been brought to wipe away every single one of your sins and all of your guilt. You don't have to bear that anymore. If you ever question how much God loves you, just look at the extent to which he went to accomplish it. God's love for you doesn't begin at the cross, but it is culminated there. God's love for you began before the foundation of the world, promised in Abraham on a dusty hill in the wilderness of Genesis 15 and brought to its fullest expression through the cross. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Friends, look to the cross and see the greatest display of love that this world has ever seen. And listen to me, it is a love for you. 
You may walk through this life and feel like you don't matter, but you matter to God. You matter to Him. And that is a story which we will never be able to comprehend. And if you've never felt God's love before, feel it today. Receive it today. This life can be yours today. Would you bow your knee today to this king? Would you receive his blessing? Would you come and have all the sin and guilt of your life be totally dealt with once and for all? The entire Bible has been building up to this moment, been building up to this word, and after it, the rest of the Bible explains the meaning of this word. And in a word, the son of David finally inaugurated the kingdom of God. In a word, the son of Abraham fulfilled his covenant with God. In a word, the son of Eve crushed the serpent's head. And in a word, the son of God accomplished his mission to redeem his people. Tetelestai, it is finished. Let's pray. God, we love you and we thank you so much for what you've done for us to be able to finish and put an end to all of our sin, to accomplish your mission. God, help us to be able to see and understand and trust your plan and your love for us. God, we thank you for your son, and we thank you that you are both a covenant maker and a covenant keeper. That whenever we broke that covenant, God, that your body was torn apart and your blood was shed so that we could once again receive your blessing and your life and your gospel. And we thank you for your son, and we pray all this in his name. Amen.